folks, and welcome to episode 738 of the NoSillaCast podcast, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for Sunday, June 30th, 2019. Well, Alison and Steve are off enjoying themselves, um, being all nerdy and going around Chile looking at large telescopes and all sorts of cool stuff on the Atacama Desert. Uh, they're going to have a little solar eclipse to enjoy, and I believe they're looking forward to enjoying the Malbec the Chileans are quite good at producing. So while Alison is out, I'm guest hosting this week, and Alistair Jenks is guest hosting next week. Um, thanks to the wonderful Nasillacast community, I had a very easy time putting this show together. We have a review of the Wing Lights from CYCL, from Joe Duganzik from Smarter Home Life. Um, my better half makes his Nasillacast pr- uh, premiere, debut, whatever we want to say, reviewing his Powerbeats 3 Bluetooth headphones. Alison makes a quick appearance to talk about opening and closing things on a Tesla. Sounds like that should be straightforward, but more to it than that. And then finally, I do my best to do a security bits without Alison's help. I never enjoy them nearly as much as a security bits with Alison's help. But anyway, I go through the two weeks worth of security news in security bits at the end of the show. Before we get stuck into this show, um, just a reminder that there has been a chit chat across the pond since uh, the last Nocillacast episode. A uh, very special episode this time, a Programming by Stealth supplemental. And unlike all the rest of the Programming by Stealth series, I'm not in this one. Um, Alison instead chats to Nasilla Castaway, Dorothy Rendon, uh, about the wonderful PBS Index page she created to accompany the series. Uh, and what I love about this is the positive feedback loop that's on display. So the PBS Index helps listeners to get more from PBS... And the PBS Index keeps getting better because the things we learn on PBS can be used to make the PBS Index better. So we learn more things and make it better, better, better. It's really cool. Continuous improvement in all the best ways. So we're now using all sorts of cool stuff like JSON, Ajax, Bootstrap, Mustache, Templates, all cool stuff. Anyway, you'll find the episode in the regular Chit Across the Pond feed as well as in the Programming by Stealth feed. Well, with all that said, let's get stuck into our first segment. Um, this is from Joe Duganzik from Smarter Home Life. And it is all about the CYCL wing lights. And as a fellow cyclist, I was extremely interested in this review. And uh, TLDR, I think this review is going to turn out to be quite expensive for me because I think I want these now. Thanks, Bart. Allison tells me that you're an avid cyclist just like myself. Good to virtually meet you. Anyways, hi, this is Joe DeGanzik from Smarter Home Life, and normally I talk all about home automation and how you can make your home a bit smarter, or something like that. And I'm always talking about how lighting plays a big role in our lives, especially at home. But for someone who puts a lot of miles on his bike each month, specifically that would be a 2012 Trek Model 7100, I always want to be sure that I'm visible to other people, cyclists, and of course, motor vehicles when I'm out riding. Bicycle visibility is especially important, of course, at night. Most cities have ordinances that require the use of at least a white headlight and a red rear reflector. But even for those of us who have a ludicrously bright headlight and taillight, Both of mine happen to be USB rechargeable, I might add, and there will be links to those uh, in the episode notes. Bicycle lights tend to light up the road, but not necessarily you or your bike itself. 
And visibility at night is especially important when looking at a bike from the side because the thin profile of a bicycle is actually pretty hard to illuminate. Some companies have tried to tackle this problem, usually by just selling kits that add little LEDs to the spokes of the wheels, which make for fun lighting effects when you're in motion, but I kind of think they're a little bit silly. Earlier this decade, a crowdfunded company based out of San Francisco called Revo Lights took the cycling world by storm with their specialized wheel lights that acted as a headlight and a tail light separately, and they formed an arc of light on the outside of the rim of each side of the wheel when a bike was in motion. Revo Lights eventually launched versions that had smartphone app control, blinked the tail light upon braking, and promised turn signals that would blink each side of the tail light. But alas, their product was priced at $150 and up, was challenging to install, and as of January of this year, they sadly closed their doors. Since it seems that I'm usually on a budget, I really liked the Revo Lights concept, but I just couldn't quite take the plunge for such an expensive product, which would have had some other drawbacks for my own bike once installed that I don't have time to go into right now. So I started looking for another less complicated and less expensive solution. At first, I just mounted some color-changing, and of course, remotely controllable, LED tape light on the underside of the down tube on my bike and hooked it up to a USB power bank that I had mounted with a special C-clamp. It did light up a bit of the bike and more of the road, but it was a bit much even at its dimmest setting, and I really didn't need to stand out that much when riding at night. After a few months, the Phoenix heat and road debris wore away some of the LED tape and the wiring and, well, it just didn't work at all anymore. So I abandoned my idea to try to light up the bike's structure and its wheels and went back to an idea from Revo Lights that I had really liked. Turn signals. I personally have never really used hand signals when cycling, partly because I think they look really silly and I can't remember which one means what. I know, I know, it's pretty dumb for a cyclist to not understand hand signals. But I think that most drivers don't understand them either, or probably don't even recognize them. Cars, trucks, and motorcycles, all of those vehicles are equipped with onboard, bright, blinking turn signals, or perhaps a more nerdy definition, directional indicator illuminators. So why is it that cyclists are left with dumb, old-fashioned manual hand signals? Because, well, that's just the way it has always been done, and evidently no one has ever come up with a better solution. Well, as it turns out, a number of years ago, a few enterprising people in the UK set out to improve safety and visibility for cyclists. And thus, a company called Cycle, that's C-Y-C-L, and their product called Wing Lights were born. I don't even quite remember how I ran into their product, but somehow I landed on it by searching for bike turn signals or something like that. Wing lights in their simplest form are beautifully designed, very bright, amber LED blinker lights that mount to the ends of straight or slightly curved bicycle handlebars. They are roughly the same diameter as your handlebars and make for a very sleek, integrated look with your bike. This was something that I instantly loved about the concept of wing lights. Once installed, they look like they have always been a part of your bike, 
and not some silly gadget made by Jenksicle Industries that you had to hack onto your bike. Oh, so speaking of being integrated, Winglights only extends your handlebars by about an inch to maybe an inch and a half on each end, depending on the version that you get. And they weigh as little as 58 grams each, depending on the model, so you're not adding a lot of weight to your bike. So while I'm talking about specs, just how bright is bright? Well, the least bright of all of the Winglights models is rated at 48 lumens per indicator, or for each side of your handlebars, and the brightest is 64 lumens per indicator. And let's be realistic. From a distance, during the day, someone may see your blinker out of the corner of their eye, but remember that these guys are still pretty small. You're a bike, not a car or a truck with a full-size power source on board. At night, however, wing lights are very, very visible and will get people's attention. I personally prefer the wing lights models where the LEDs are not under a frosted cover because the individual LED elements are more attention-grabbing, in my humble opinion, than a frosted end cap. But adding any wing lights to your bike is still a great upgrade. There are two general versions of the Winglights products, one that stays attached to the handlebars and one that screws onto handlebar mounts and stays locked on with very strong magnets. Both versions use a patented mounting system that inserts into the ends of handlebars that have an inner diameter of anywhere between 14.7 and 22 millimeters. I should also mention that all of the Winglights devices are fully weatherproof, but not necessarily completely life-proof. Once mounted to your bike, they stay securely attached, sometimes to their detriment as the anodized aluminum finish can get scuffed up pretty easily. I personally have the magnetic ones because people seem to like to take stuff off of my bike when it is locked up. And as I do take the bike on our local trains for getting around, removing them prevents the wing lights from getting knocked around or accidentally activated. Now let's talk activation. Wing lights sadly do not yet feature a neural link that can understand when you are about to make a turn or have some kind of fancy tilt sensors on board. But there is a dedicated button on the end of each wing light that can be pushed to activate the flashing LEDs. And they flash with the cadence that you would expect from a traditional car or truck turn signal. The button itself has a really good feel to it too. Just press once to turn on and again to turn off. More recent wing lights models will shut off the flashers automatically after about a minute, if you forget. The least expensive version, called Wing Lights Pop, costs just $25 a pair, and the button is the frosted round end cap itself that covers the amber LEDs. The other versions of wing lights have more of a ring of light that goes around the circumference of the device, situated between both ends. So which version do I have? Well, I got my first pair of wing lights mag back in October of 2018, and I was very, very pleased with them right from the start. They are extremely easy to install with the special rubberized friction mounts, and I love being able to take them off the bike to prevent theft and keep them looking in perfect condition. Now, if your bike happens to accidentally land directly on one of the ends of your handlebars, it's not necessarily the end of your wing lights. My bike, generally due to no fault of my own, sadly took a number of spills, not while in motion, during the months after I got my wing lights and they got a bit scuffed up, a bit bent because the mounts tend to stay so securely in the handlebars, 
I did manage to bend them back somewhat, and one of the buttons became a little bit more difficult to activate after it got beat up. But overall, the lights did continue to still work as expected. Now let's fast forward a bit. I really love my wing lights, and they definitely help in letting others on the road know where I'm headed next. But getting back to the purposes of this piece, and how best to light yourself and your bike up at night, the wing lights only solved part of my problem. So until relatively recently, I was actually planning on designing a custom-built, 3D printed set of integrated LED down lights that I would mount at the front and back of my bike to illuminate more of the bike's structure and of course the road. This was going to be a relatively complicated project for a 3D printing and custom electronics newbie and one that I still might take on but for the moment it has been shelved. And now as Paul Harvey used to say on the radio, here is the rest of the story. Last month, I decided to bring some of my concerns about the durability of wing lights to the company who makes them, Cycle. And, of course, I also posted it to Amazon, which is where I originally bought them. Cycle got back to me within about a day and was genuinely very sorry to hear about my troubles with their product. They offered me a free set of the handlebar mounts to replace mine that I had mostly, well, kinda bent back to normal again. Or they said they could offer me a discount on buying a whole new set of wing lights. This potential discount prompted me to peruse their website at cycle.bike, which I hadn't looked at since last fall. I immediately noticed that there were two new products, Wing Lights 360 Mag and Wing Lights 360 Fixed, both with clear light rings instead of amber light rings and seemingly different types of LEDs inside. As I read further down the page, I started hearing my wallet calling for me to come grab it and give my credit card some exercise. The Winglights 360 products come in both a magnetic and a fixed version and feature the same beautiful design that has become integrated into my bike and, of course, their very bright amber LED turn signals. The 360 addition to the product are two 10-lumen LEDs for each wing light, white for the front and red for the rear. While they are not a standard headlight or taillight in brightness, they give others on the road a better sense of how to safely pass you as they indicate the width of your bike. And the red LEDs will illuminate you to a certain extent, giving you better visibility from the side. Around sunset or dusk, the Winglights 360 can be a super simple way to provide illumination of your bike to others on the road if you were running late when heading back home and you didn't think you needed to bring your lights that day, which seems to happen to me all the time lately. Winglights 360's new LEDs will illuminate continuously if you long press, or is it force touch? Oh, right. If you press and hold their buttons for a few seconds, and they will illuminate for up to three hours on a single charge, with the blinkers lasting for much, much longer. Single charge, you ask? Yes, Winglights 360 are USB rechargeable. They are actually the first product from Cycle that doesn't require separate battery changes about every six months. And no, sorry, they're not USB-C, but hey, they will charge in about 30 minutes or less. 
The older Winglite's products do use two CR2032 coin cell batteries that will last for, as I said, about six months when used daily, and I can attest to that battery life being pretty darn accurate. You can also evidently get LIR2032 rechargeable lithium batteries for your wing lights and other gadgets, but I have no clue how you would charge them. But I'm sure there's probably a solution on Amazon for $6.99 from good old Jangsicle Industries. I've had my new Winglights 360 Mag combination bike blinkers and marker lights for just over a month now, and I love them even more than the Winglights Mag that I used for about six months. Now I am always looking for a reason to ride at night to be able to use them to their full capabilities. And sure, it's just really fun to show them off too. I could go on and on about wing lights, as you can probably tell, but this segment is way over the time limit, and Allison is waving at me furiously from South America to get it wrapped up. While I can't cite any statistics or anything regarding how many collisions that wing lights have helped me avoid, although technically I'm still alive and still here, I'm sure that there have been probably more than a few surprised drivers, pedestrians, and other cyclists out there when they see my bike blinkers in action, and now especially at night with the red and white marker lights. Cycle officially says that you should continue to use hand signals and that their turn signal products should only be used in addition to traditional hand signals. I say to hell with it all, and that bikes should come with built-in, high-quality lighting systems just like other vehicles on the road. With today's efficient LED lighting and battery technologies, it's really no longer a matter of cost or complexity. It should be a standard safety feature. Let's all get together and make hand signals for bicyclists go the way of the horse and buggy. As for the rest of my bike lighting gear, I have a 500 lumen, ridiculously bright cycle torch headlight, a Blitzu 168T taillight that's also crazy bright, and a ruler helmet with an integrated rear LED light. At this point, I'm pretty hard to miss while out on the road, but not obnoxiously hard to miss. And as I tend to put about two to 300 miles on my bike per month, I now have plenty of things to recharge. Finally, and not related to lighting, but definitely related to safety, for listening to workout music or high-paced techno while riding, I use bone conduction Trex titanium headphones from Aftershocks, which have pretty amazing sound quality for what they are, and I can still hear the environment around my bike. Plus, they're Bluetooth-equipped, have pause and next track buttons, volume control, an onboard mic so I can even take phone calls, and sometimes I can get Siri to switch playlists. Cycle is working on additional mounts for other types of handlebars, including drop, bullhorn, and cruise, so that every bike can have a pair of wing lights on board. Wing lights start at just $25 for the pop and go all the way up to $80 for the 360 mag. Whichever wing lights you decide to get, they are totally worth the price. Check the episode notes on podfeed.com for product links. This is Joe DeGanzik from SmarterHomeLife.com in sunny and very toasty Phoenix, Arizona, saying stay bright and stay safe. And I'm reporting for Nasillacast and the Podfeet Podcast Empire. Now back to you, Bart, in the studio. Thanks for that, Joe. Like I said up front, I think this is going to turn out to be an expensive review for me because I think I want these for my bike. I 
you know, my when I very you know, so my very first glance of these, I thought, oh, that's fine. I don't need these because hand signals are just fine. I know my hand signals. Irish drivers are generally aware of what they mean. They might still ignore you, but I don't think it's because they don't understand the hand signals. But anyway, let's leave that aside. And then I remember that at night, my hands are not lit up, so I can make all the signals I want, and no one's going to see them. So actually, I do need these. And since it's a safety thing, I should buy them without feeling guilty about spending money. Right? That's how it works, isn't it? Anyway, thank you, Joe. These are really quite a cool product, and thank you for sharing it with us all. Next up, I want to give a big Nocilla Castaways welcome to my darling beloved delight of my life, Wing, who is here to review his set of Powerbeats 3 Bluetooth headphones. To give a little background, I've been an iPhone user since the 3G was released in Ireland. Prior to that, I was in a Nokia of some description, which I still have in a drawer because they're virtually indestructible. I was at the time a little reluctant to change from a Nokia because I was comfortable with it and I didn't really see the point in smartphones. And to be fair, at the time, they didn't really offer much beyond a better screen. Apps weren't a thing yet, so I wasn't really convinced and if it hadn't been for the fact that Bart was upgrading his iPhone, I probably wouldn't have converted as early as I did, but I took his 3G to see how I felt about them. Once the App Store released, however, I was strongly converted, and since then I have upgraded either as Bart upgraded his in hand-me-down form, or when we could afford to replace both at once. For Christmas 2018, Bart bought me a pair of Adidas over-ear wired headphones from the Apple Store, they cost about €180, Euro, which I considered to be quite expensive, especially given the quality wasn't great. They wore out very quickly, and within a year they needed to be replaced. The entire thing left me feeling somewhat cheated. When it came to replacing them, I decided to spend the same kind of money on wireless earphones, and for last Christmas, Bart bought me a pair of Powerbeats 3. I have a few criticisms, and I'd like to get them out of the way. Firstly, the volume and power control are on the left-hand side, which means that I have to reach my right hand across my chest in order to answer calls or adjust the volume. I can just about manage enough control with my left hand, but as someone who has minor dexterity issues, it is awkward for me, so I expect it might be problematic for someone who has more significant accessibility concerns than I do. I think they should be on the right-hand side unless you specify a left-hand model. Secondly, the ear hooks don't seem to be readily adjustable so they can hurt for the first few weeks until they eventually adjust, or your ears do. Finally, you can't charge them while using them, though that appears to be a function of Bluetooth ear sets in general, and not just the Powerbeats 3. That said, they are incredibly straightforward to use. They pair very easily with all of my devices, and I have a Windows 10 gaming rig, an Ubuntu laptop, and my iPhone and iPad. I remember Bluetooth during my Nokia years, and the connection would frequently drop for no good reason, and the audio quality was not great, but the earphones are better than the wired earphones than I was using. I've replaced my wired headphones for all purposes, be it watching Netflix late at night, or discording during wear rates, though I have to use another mic for that, because I often eat and drink while gaming, and the headset's mic picks that up, which can be distracting for other gamers but that's not a criticism as I'm using them for a purpose other than they were designed. And I have a webcam which has a microphone and works perfectly. Thankfully, Discord allows you to set the sound input and output separately. On the whole, they're excellent quality for money, costing only €20 Euro more than the Adidas headset which I had, which fell apart. They're definitely more durable, and the sound quality in both the earphones and the microphone are better. 
To demonstrate the microphone's sound quality, I'm going to do the next section with the headset microphone as opposed to the radio microphone that I'm currently using. So this is what the microphone on the headset sounds like. But while doing this, I discovered, as most people reviewing Bluetooth headsets no doubt have, that because of the way Bluetooth headsets work, there's a moment or two where Audacity doesn't recognize that there's input, even though you're speaking. So they're probably not much use for podcasting unless you're already expecting this. And here I am back on the radio mic, and I'm surprised by the quality of the headset's microphone. There's definitely more noise, but that's to be expected, and I was expecting there to be a lot more noise than there is. I almost forgot to mention the battery life, which is excellent. I've used them actively for hours on end and been surprised when they eventually die because I've forgotten I'm on Bluetooth earphones and not my wired ones. So on the whole, I wholeheartedly recommend them and give them a solid 4.5 out of 5. Thanks for that review, love. I'm glad my Christmas present worked out okay this time. Um, it was really disappointing last year when the, the Adidas fell apart so quickly. So it's, it's, it's good to know that the Beats are living up to the challenge. And I see you wearing them all the time. So I, I know you're enjoying them, which is great. Just because she's off enjoying the Malbec doesn't mean we don't get to hear from Alison in this episode. Um, she sent me on a recording uh, continuing her ongoing series of Tesla Tech, where she is giving us her adventures, or tales from her adventures, in her iPad with wheels. The, this installment is about opening and closing things, which sounds like it should be really simple. Yeah, unsurprisingly with the Tesla, there's a little bit more to it than that. So over to you, Alison. Hey, Bert, I hope you don't mind my sneaking in here, but I wanted to tell you a little Tesla tech story. I haven't done one of those in a little while. I think that the designers at Tesla studied under the school of Steve Jobs and Johnny Ives when it comes to making things so minimalistic that they're actually harder to use. Remember the one-button mouse that we all wished had more buttons, so Apple actually shipped a no-button mouse? How many people miss their home buttons on the newer iPhones? So you get what I mean, right? With the Tesla Model 3, they've eliminated buttons that help to open things. Let's start with the outside of the car. On the Model S, the bigger sedan by Tesla, the door handles are completely flush to the door panels. The handles appear as simple polished rectangles. But if you approach with your key fob in your hand, the handles slide out in an elegant way, inviting you to simply pull open the door. They work really well. But with the Model 3, they chose a different design. Like the Model S, the handles are flush to the door panels for aerodynamics and the cool factor, but they don't slide open when you approach. Instead, you have to guess how to open the door. The handle is thin towards the front of the car, with it becoming kind of taller at the back in kind of like a, this hockey stick formation. It's one way you can tell the Model 3 apart from a Model S if you don't see the cars side by side. They oddly look very much the same. The trick to opening this handle is to push on the thick part and then the thin part will kind of rotate out. And if you're quick about it, you can then grab the thin part to pull open the door. This is not at all a natural motion. And even though I've gotten the hang of it, I find that I don't like pulling it all the way open that way. It feels like my hand's just going to slip off the handle. So instead, I pull the door part way and then quickly before it swings shut, I grab the door jam to pull it the rest of the way open in kind of a controlled way. Sometimes I even use my knee to do it, to hold it still until I get and get a hold of it. Now, you could suggest that I'm just not that bright, that I can't figure out how to open the door, but most of the people who ride my car have stood staring at the door asking, so, how do you open the door? See, it's not just me. Cracking the code on opening the doors from the inside makes the external door handles look like child's play. 
Like any normal car, the, uh, on the door is mounted a large padded handle. But unlike normal cars, there's no metal handle to grab and rotate out. You'll see a button that's obviously the window because it's the standard black rectangular button with a little white line on it. Push down to open the window, pull up to close the window. So far, so good. On the top of the padded handle, though, you'll see another black rectangular button with a white line on it. But it doesn't have a pull up, push down. It's just a down button. Also down by the window buttons, there's a large black rectangular handle that you can only pull up. But do not pull up on that handle. Oh, sure, it'll open the door, but you're doing it wrong, and you could actually damage the car over time. Wait, what? Well, it turns out the small rectangular button with the white line on it is the right button to open the door. When you press that button, the window winds down just a smidge, and then the door closure mechanism releases. At that point, if you time it perfectly, you can push on the door itself to open it the rest of the way. If you do not time it perfectly, you're left in a state where the door won't open, nor is it fully closed. You have to try again with the little button. The large handle that does open the door is only for emergency use. If you use that handle, the window does not wind down partially before opening the door, which means you're sort of bending the window as you push the door open. So, I mean, it makes sense that you can't be waiting for the door to wind down if it's an emergency, like you've lost power, you can't get the door open. You do have to do that, but why does that, I don't know, why is it designed like that? Anyway, I got the hang of this fairly quickly. I'm pretty good at pressing the button and opening the door. However, I've had two people, one with a master's degree in engineering from Caltech and the other with a PhD in psychology, and both of them failed to ever get the door open on their own through several different attempts. Well, the good news is there is an actual real live button on the rear trunk lid that allows you to open the trunk just like any other car. In fact, I like it better than the button that I had on my old Acura TL trunk because that one was off-center, and for some reason, in six years, I could never find it on my first try. In addition to the glorious single button, there are two other ways to open the rear trunk. When the car is in park, on the screen in the front seat, there's a graphical representation of the car on the left-hand side. There's a button on screen behind the trunk inviting you to open it electronically. I find that particularly pleasing. There's also a button on screen to open the front trunk, but there is no physical button to open the front trunk. I have no idea why that is, other than it might be aesthetically displeasing, or maybe it'd get bugs in it while you were driving. Both of the front and rear trunk can be opened via the Tesla app on your phone as well. That means that even remotely, I could open the trunk. I remember hearing about an Amazon delivery option where they would deliver to your car, so perhaps it could be useful for something like that for the remote opening. In perhaps one of the weirdest omissions on the car, there is no physical button to open the glove box. You have to use the large screen on the car. First, you tap on the small car icon in the bottom left, which brings up an overlay screen that covers up the map. Then you'll see a button that says glove box, which does what it says on the tin. I've tried to figure out why there's no physical lever to open the glove box, and I have a theory. When you hand your car over to a valet for valet parking, the valet now has your key or fob to your car, which might be on a key ring that also has your house key. She will also be able to look into your glove box for your car registration, which shows your home address. She also knows that you are not home. With the Model 3 design, you give your key card to the valet that restricts her driving speed and acceleration and does not allow her to open the glove box, find out where you live, and burglarize your house. 
That's my theory, and I'm sticking with it, but it's still kind of weird. One of the slick features of Teslas is that when you arrive at your destination, you simply get out of your car and walk away. The car both turns itself off and locks locks itself automatically. It even folds the little side view mirrors in. Our longtime Tesla-owning buddy Ron says that he's rented ICE cars, those are internal combustion engine cars, while on business travel. And he's gone into a Starbucks for some coffee and come back out and realized he left the car running and unlocked. I'll have to watch for that. Anyway, this is a slick feature, as I said, and you can turn it off if you disagree. But there's one downside. When I leave my car in my garage, I can't just go out there later and get something out of it if I don't have my phone with me. I have to have the phone or the key key card, I should say, to unlock the car, even when the car is at home. Now, you might think that's all an algorithm can do is turn itself off the same way everywhere. But here's why I think it could be vastly more clever. First of all, I have taught the car where my home is so that I can navigate to home from where I am with the tap of a button. In addition, when I drive up to my house, a little green house symbol lights up and the word garage in green pops down. I can tap that and I can open my garage. I can also close my garage with that. This uh, also does another thing. When I drive up to the to the house and I'm about to go into the garage, those little mirrors fold in automatically as I drive in. So the car knows it's home and it knows it's in my garage. Why can't it also be set to not lock when it's in my garage at home? Well, maybe the garage door is open, but guess what? I have a smart garage door opener. Maybe the Tesla should ask the door opener, is it open or closed? And if it's closed, let me in my car with my my own darn phone. Anyway, I suppose there will come a time when I will begin to remember to grab my phone whenever I want to get something out of my car in the garage. But I can tell you that day has not yet come. One of my biggest pet peeves is when designers don't understand the root cause of a problem a user is experiencing and instead write instructions to the user on what to do when they experience the problem. You might remember a while ago I told the story of Steve building a cabinet for our DVD collection, and when he was done assembling it, he discovered that they had only given him about 20% of the the number of little shelf pins that he required. I looked in the box, and there was a bright yellow sheet of paper that said, If you can't find all your hardware, check to see if it's stuck to the packing tape. So, instead of packaging the parts so they wouldn't get stuck to the tape, they're paying someone to print out this message, wasting paper and natural resources, and paying someone else to spend their time putting it in every box they deliver to their customers. Now, while a single piece of paper doesn't weigh that much, 100 sheets weighs about a pound, that means they're paying extra shipping costs and using more gas in the trucks to deliver them. And let's not forget, the customer's still super angry when they think they don't have all the hardware. All that instead of fixing the root cause problem. I tell all of this story as a framework for another door-opening weirdness in the Tesla Model 3. Actually, in this case, it's a door-closing weirdness. Between the two front seats, there's a center console as there is in most cars. The armrest part opens with a lever just like every other car on Earth. But in front of that is another very useful compartment. There's a glossy black, easily scratched and fingerprinted cover that you can gently lift with one finger to expose the chamber underneath. So far, so good. The problem comes when you go to close the console cover. Naturally, one would assume you would sort of snap it shut to get it to latch, right? Nope, that will make the lid pop right back open. So you try it again. Nope, pops open again. Guess what the designers did to solve this very obvious problem? 
they pop up a note on screen with a happy little green eye icon that says, close console lid gently. I can just imagine the designer of this console lid feeling that her elegant design is too precious for her to change instead, and instead telling the software engineers to explain its correct usage to the moron user. Like remembering to bring my phone to my car to open up what's in my garage, I suspect I will one day get the hang of closing this console lid. But again, that day has not yet come. All right, Bart, back to you now. Thanks very much for that, Alison. Um, and now I get to hand over to myself, which is a bit weird. Okay, so apologies up front for all of the things that I should be explaining better, that Alison should be here to correct me on or to make me clarify that I'm now going to completely miss because I'm all by my little lonesome self. Anyway, with that said, let's let's do our best to work our way through some security news for the last two weeks. Uh, two follow-ups to kick off on first. Um, we talked a while ago about Facebook's infamous, let's say, um, app that uh, they use to quote-unquote study their users. Um, it made use of their Onavo VPN technology to basically spy on everything the users did. And they did give a small token amount of money to the people involved, but there were all sorts of issues about whether or not the consent was clear. They were sort of hiding their name and they were abusing Apple's enterprise developer program. And it was generally a great big mess and they got into quite a bit of trouble with Apple over it. Anyway, they have a new, more upfront version of the app, um, but it is Android only, presumably because they can't get it by Apple's App Store rules. We also talked a few times over the past couple of months about apps abusing uh, iOS's um, their subscription model in the App Store. Basically, you would have an app that offers a ridiculously priced subscription, and then people go, "Oh my God, it's, you know, didn't mean that." So it might be billing them twenty euro a day or something ridiculous, and they delete the app on the assumption that when the app is gone, the subscription is gone. But that's not how iTunes, iOS, etc. works, or at least it's not how it works at the moment. One of the things to come out of the developer previews is that iOS 13 is going to help nip this problem in the bud in a very simple way. When you delete an app, and if that app has active subscriptions, it will offer to also delete the subscription if you'd like, which is perfect because you may have a subscription app that you use on multiple devices and you may only want to remove it from one device. Uh, So having it automatically delete the subscription would be really bad, but having it offer is just spot on perfect. So good job, Apple, and look forward to that with iOS 13. We have one security medium to talk about, a nasty big security vulnerability called Rambleed. I say nasty big. I mean, it's significant in terms of news, but the icon it has in the show notes is a fire extinguisher. So immediately, the TLDR version is no need to panic. So we have known about Rowhammer for quite some time now, and there's been all sorts of different variants of it. And, you know, as we always say, attacks never get better or never get worse. They only get better. Well, there is now a new variant of Rowhammer called Rambleed, and it's really quite different. So Rowhammer works uh, on modern, so the most commonly used types of RAM, which is DDR3 and DDR4 SD RAM. And the way the attack works is an attacker has to arrange so that they, their process is physically next to the victim process in RAM. And there's all sorts of tricks for achieving that. 
And then they read their RAM really aggressively, repeatedly, rapidly, so that there's electromagnetic interference and effectively their rights in their cell of RAM causes corruption in the adjacent cells, causing bits to flip, and effectively you get to write to another process's RAM, which is very dangerous. That's serious process isolation. So Rohammer allows repeated reads to cause bit flips in other people's memory. Well, RAM bleed takes things to a whole different level. But actually, before we get there, just to say that Rohammer is is also a fire extinguisher one because like Spectre and Meltdown, um, it doesn't really affect home users in the sense that in order to fall victim to it, you need to have malware on your computer so that it can attack other processes. Well, it's your computer, so if you have malware, that malware doesn't need to use RAM or doesn't need to use Rohammer. It can do way more powerful things way more easily than hammering away on RAM like that. So in a home environment, Rohammer just isn't that big of a deal. But where it's a huge deal is in shared cloud hosting, where it's not just a separate process, it's a separate VM that could be sitting next to each other in RAM. And that VM, if you're in a public cloud, could belong to absolutely anyone. So, you know, a failure of VM isolation is a huge big deal. And so that's why Rowhammer is very important for cloud providers. But cloud providers haven't really had the stress about Rowhammer for a very simple reason. You don't host your cloud on home computers. You host your cloud on really expensive high-end servers. And really expensive high-end servers don't use plain old DDR3 or DDR4 SD RAM. They use RAM that contains an added feature called ECC, or error correction code. And as its name suggests, ECC RAM has built-in error detection and correction. So if Rowhammer flips a bit in ECC RAM, then the error detection kicks in, the various checksums that are kept are used, and the original value can be recalculated and restored. So Rowhammer gets to very, very temporarily break RAM, but ECC immediately steps in and puts it back to how it was. So no process can ever read corrupted RAM, so ECC stops. Rowhammer. Well, the RAM bleed people have done what I can only describe as a jiu-jitsu move and turned ECC from a protection into a vulnerability. So we're down to side channel attacks again, just like with Spectre and Meltdown. So when ECC detects an error, calculates the correct value and writes it back, that slows things down a lot. Detectably a lot. So an attacking process can know when it succeeded in flipping a bit and it can know because ECC stepping in causes these massive timing delays. The next step, so knowing you flipped a bit isn't enough to do an attack. The next piece of information that makes attacks possible is that there's an asymmetry between the probability of flipping a 1 to a 0 and a 0 to a 1. They're not quite as likely as each other. So if you, as an attacker, use Rowhammer on ECC RAM to hammer away at a piece of memory you're trying to read in this case, you use a certain bit pattern over and over and over again, 
count the flips. And then you use a different bid pattern over and over and over again. Count the flips and another one and another one and another one. By varying your bid pattern and repeating the process to gather statistics, you can effectively map out the structure of the RAM you're attacking. In other words, the content of the RAM you're attacking by applying some statistics to the output of your test. So basically you alter the input, you you hammer over and over again, you measure how often there's a bit flip. And because there's an asymmetry between going from one to zero and zero to one, you can use that data to probabilistically read the memory that is adjacent to you. Now, probabilistic is a really important word here. What you get here is all about, you know, there's a certain probability of flipping a 1 to a 0 and a 0 to a 1. And so if you attack a certain amount of times, and you can say with a certain level of confidence that the content of this RAM is these certain bits. But it's not a direct read. It's indirect. And what you get out is what is probably in that piece of RAM. Or maybe you end up with a set of possible values in that piece of RAM. So it's a bit quantum physics-y. You're not actually getting a direct here are the ones and zeros exactly as they were written to RAM. So the first thing to note here is that the ability to change someone else's RAM is bad, but the ability to read someone else's RAM is actually worse. So ECC appears to have made Rohammer worse for cloud computing. Uh oh. Now the first thing is it's called RAM bleed. And using the word bleed in a vulnerability name has become a thing since Heartbleed. And it's generally used to indicate the attack is slow. So you're doing these, you know, statistical analysis of all of these Rohammer flips. So that takes time. This, you can't read rapidly changing data in this way. You can only change, read data that hangs around for a long time. And so the proof-of-concept attack was against encryption keys, which are exactly the kind of thing that tend to hang around in memory because you need to keep them there to keep doing your thing. In specific, the attack was against OpenSSH because it uses encryption keys, obviously, because it's the secure shell. And as long as the OpenSSH server is running, its encryption keys are sitting in RAM, and therefore if you can get OpenSSH's you know, private key in particular, that you have compromised, you have broken the encryption on secure shell. That is a really big deal. Again, of course, just to stress, this is only of relevance to data center style deployments where you have multiple virtual machines sharing a single piece of RAM because now you you have some random person who also happened to be having a machine on AWS can read your RAM. Bad, 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 bad. Not a thing for home uses because if there's a piece of malware in your computer, it can just read your RAM. It doesn't need to do any of the shenanigans. Now, what's particularly cool is so the proof of concept was against OpenSSH. And the OpenSSH guys have already managed to fix the problem and it is also wonderfully ingenious to fix they came up with. Um, Even though at first glance it sounds absolutely insane and it sounds like circular logic that makes no sense. So the thing to know, so what they're doing is they are encrypting their encryption key and thereby preventing it being read. And they're storing the encrypted version of their encryption key in RAM 2. So that just sounds like you now have two keys for RAM bleed to read. And so you haven't really solved anything. 
what you have because Rambleed is probabilistic. Now, OpenSSH uses public-private key pairs because it's public key encryption. And there is, the public key is public. And there is a relationship between a private key and a public key. So if you have 20 guesses for what the private key might be, you can use the public key to tell you what it actually is. Therefore, you can deal with the probabilistic nature of Rambleed by the fact that the private and the public key are interrelated. So you have an extra little piece of information to turn your probabilities into a known reality. Therefore, you get the key. Symmetric encryption doesn't have two keys. It has one key. And the value of a symmetric encryption key could be anything. Every answer is equally as possible as every other answer. So what the OpenSSH people did was they encrypted their private key with a very long symmetric key. And by making the key long, the probability problem adds up and adds up and adds up. So, you know, Rambleed may over time give you a handful of possible values for the first byte of the key. But then they have to do it again for the second byte of the key and those probabilities start to multiply together. And then the third and they multiply together again and then the fourth and they multiply together again. It's exponential. And so if you take a long symmetric key, the probabilistic nature of Rambleed and the fact that any key is valid, there's no way to turn your probabilities into one final fact, means that you cannot break the symmetric encryption which means you can't get at the asymmetric private key because it's been symmetrically encrypted with the key you can't read. Absolutely genius. And so this is an approach that can be used for any sort of data like that. So this isn't a necessary oh, but it's a thing. This is just a how you can protect any private key you like from uh, Rambleed. You just apply the same technique the OpenSSH guys have come up with. And because OpenSSH is open source, anyone can see the code. So absolutely brilliant software solution. Now, thankfully, the Amazons of this world, giving us our AWS clusters and the Microsofts with their Azure and all that kind of stuff, we don't have to rely on customers of them applying software fixes to protect those cloud services from this kind of attack. There are hardware-level solutions that the providers can implement as well. Modern CPUs actually have technology built into them which allows separate per-VM RAM encryption keys. So it's not just that the RAM is encrypted, which is already cool. It's that different encryption keys are used for each virtual machine sharing the RAM And those encryption keys aren't stored in the RAM. Those encryption keys are stored in secure enclaves on the CPU itself. So they're not on the RAM chip. So they can't be adjacent to an attacker's RAM because they're not in RAM at all. And so that means that there is no way for Rambleed to read the RAM encryption keys out of the CPU's secure enclave. Therefore, each VM has its own encryption key. And so it doesn't matter if you can read your neighbor's You can't do anything with it because it's encrypted with a key you just simply cannot access. And again, 
large cloud providers are using modern CPUs, so they have this low-level hardware support right within their CPUs. They just need to make sure that it's switched on and properly configured. So thankfully, even for people running massive big data centers, if they know what they're doing, they can apply the fire extinguisher too. So you'll find links in the show notes to the Bugs official webpage and its cute icon, because of course all named Bugs have cute icons on webpages these days. That's that thing now, again, thanks to Heartbleed. Uh, There's a really good description of how the whole thing works and what the implications are over at Bleeping Computer, so that's linked as well. And finally, Naked Security did a really good job of explaining OpenSSH's really clever defense against Rambleed. Okay, so, notable security updates. The Linux kernel has been patched against three vulnerabilities in the TCPIP network stack. Those were nasty vulnerabilities. They allowed a remote attacker to crash a Linux computer by sending it a malformed TCP packet. So, because the network stack is touching the network, by definition, it's actually a very easy bug to exploit. Now, thankfully, what it gave the attackers was not remote code execution but it caused the kernel to halt. In other words, instant server crash, denial of service, send one dodgy packet at a Linux machine and it falls over in a giant big heap. Bad. You'll see it called the TCP SAC flaw because it involves a TCP packet called the SAC packet. Um, The good news is it's patched. It was disclosed responsibly, fixed properly, therefore all good, and all the major Linux distributions have updates. If you're running Linux, patch, 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 patch. Mozilla patched two separate zero-day flaws within the space of a week in their Firefox browser. So if you're running Firefox, do please make sure that it's fully up to date. Uh, Finally, VLC have released their biggest ever security update, and that's good. You know, bugs squished, always good. Two of them are critical, great. But what makes this noteworthy is how these bugs came to light. Uh, we talked a while ago about the EU creating a bug bounty program where the EU would fund, basically pay for bugs found in open source software that's commonly used throughout the EU institutions. And VLC is one of those pieces of open source software used throughout the EU institutions. And these bugs were basically paid for by European Union taxpayer money. And I think that's brilliant as a European Union taxpayer. So it's good to see that bug bounty program by the EU bearing very productive fruit, making the whole internet community safer. Notable news. Our good friends at Celebrite, the Israeli grey hat company, we'll call it, uh, who have had a few previous products that have broken into earlier versions of the iPhone. Well, they're back. They're now advertising a new product which claims it can break into any iPhone running even the very latest versions of iOS. It's a brochure, so we don't really know what's going on. We just know that they are selling this ability as a product to law enforcement. For all we know, it doesn't work on iOS 13. For all we know, it does work on iOS 13. For all we know, it only works in 5% of cases, or it takes six months to work because it has to hammer away. We don't know the details. What we do know is that over time, these things tend to get fixed because they're obviously exploiting some sort of zero-day bug. Um, And we also know that despite the fact that Celebrite only claimed to sell to law enforcement, um, their stuff tends to end up for sale secondhand uh, on the, you know, like Amazon and eBay and stuff. 
now by the time it's on sale on eBay, it's usually no longer cutting edge. You can only work on older, unupdated iPhones where people haven't patched, 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 patched. But still, this is a bit dodge. And then there's the other minor inconvenience that some law enforcement and some government are actually kind of not the good guys. You know, it's, it, you know, with those of us living in stable Western democracies are lucky in the sense that we can trust our authorities, at least, you know, reasonably. That's really, really not true in many parts of the world. So the fact that Celebrite sell to quote-unquote law enforcement isn't actually all that much different than selling to terrorists in some cases. So... Again, grey hat territory. Uh, We can then flip to some good news from Microsoft. They have announced that they are adding a new feature to their OneDrive product called Personal Vault. And this is a special area of your OneDrive that gets extra protections. Uh, It gets unlocked on a short-term basis and only when you do some sort of advanced proof of who you are. So maybe a biometric read or some other forms of advanced authentication. And when you do unlock it, it doesn't stay unlocked for very long. So it's basically a more secure little subset of your OneDrive that won't just be unencrypted all the time like the rest of your OneDrive is well as mounted. It will instead force you to authenticate, use it for a bit and then lock it down again. Very clever. It's rolling out slowly. So I think Canada is one of the first countries that are going to get it. And it's going to be with everyone by the end of 2019, but it's going to be trickling out to people, not not a big bang release. Uh, Interesting new development. There's a a crowd called Openly Operated who are trying to create a new standard whereby we can test if internet services are operating fairly. So if you're certified openly operated, that means that you are being honest and upfront with your customers about what you do with their data. It doesn't actually set any rules on what you do. What it sets rules on is how transparent you are about that fact. So it's not about stopping the things that are happening happening. It's about making sure that everyone who chooses to trade off their privacy for free stuff is making an honest, well-informed decision as opposed to what we have now where you're basically being enticed and cajoled and there's the absolute minimum being done to keep you informed. Basically, we will meet the minimum requirements of the law and absolutely no more so that we hope you're as uninformed as possible so that you'll agree to as much as possible. Well, openly operated would change all that. I don't know if it's going to succeed, but it's a very interesting idea. So link in show notes with more details. Mozilla took their attack on... um, Tracking in an interesting new direction with a project called Track This, where the aim is to both show you how tracking works and fool the trackers, at least temporarily, by automatically opening hundreds of tabs in your browser to all sorts of sites that will then build a fake profile of you. And they basically let you choose from four different archetypes and then they will say, if you click OK, we're going to open hundreds of tabs. And then they do. And then all the advertisements you start to see will match whatever profile you picked out of the four archetypes because you've just fooled the ad trackers. They'll, you know, after a week or two, things will all be back to normal. But it's, it's an interesting concept because it's more about showing really than about permanently tricking the advertisers. But it's it's interesting. In the US, a Florida court has put another confliction ruling in the whole question of whether or not your passwords and stuff in your head counts as Fourth Amendment testimony or not. I think it's no Fifth Amendment, right? Not to incriminate yourself, not to testify against yourself. So is giving police your password testimony? Difficult question. Different courts have come down on things in different ways. The Florida court has come down in favour of your passcode being self-incrimination if you're forced to hand it over. So it is testifying against yourself, which you're protected from constitutionally in the US. 
So I would say a strike in the right direction, but other US courts have ruled in the other way. So ultimately, this is just yet another reason why the Supreme Court are going to have to weigh in on this because different courts are coming to different conclusions. There isn't, you know, unified justice across the country. That cannot stand forever. It will end up at the Supreme Court. It's just a matter of how and when. Uh, A development from our friends over on Twitter. They are starting to flag tweets from world leaders that break its rules. So this is a very interesting halfway house between... Applying the rules equally to everyone, even if you're all-powerful, and free speech. Because you can make a cogent argument that just because you happen to be president of America doesn't mean that you're above the rules of civility and so forth, and doesn't mean that you should be allowed to do things on Twitter that random people are not allowed to do, that would get random people banned. On the other hand, you can make the argument that world leaders should have free speech and shouldn't be censored by arbitrary, capricious tech companies. And I can see both sides of that argument, actually. So, Twitter have walked the middle road. We won't delete the post, but we'll flag it so that everyone knows that this post is against the rules. So, you know, free speech is still there, and there's still a clear, obvious flagging that this is actually not on. This is inappropriate behaviour by random world leader. One world leader in particular is likely to bump into this. It would be very interesting to see what happens the first time certain red-headed presidents' breakfast ablutions are interrupted by a message saying breaking the rules. I'd be very curious to see how that goes. Very curious indeed. Anyway, that is interesting development from Twitter. Finally, under notable news, two very nice developments from our friends in Google, making their Chrome browser more secure. From a privacy point of view, it's of course a train wreck, and none of this changes that train wreck in terms of privacy. But again, free thing in exchange for your privacy, that's that's how these things work. Part of the surveillance economy, you're entirely free to choose to go that route. Anyway, if you do, you now have more protections in terms of security. There's not about privacy from Google, this is about security from the rest of the planet. So the first feature they've introduced is typo squatting protection. So it is a thing where attackers buy domain names that are like one butterfinger typo away from real places people actually want to go and then use those to do something naughty like perhaps phishing or perhaps malware delivery. And so they're relying on the fact that people do write typos and people are quite predictable. So if you buy Google with one too few O's.com, then there's every chance you're going to get a lot of traffic to that site. Well, Google have now added some intelligence into their browser that if you try to go to a URL that's almost the same as a URL you go to regularly, i.e. URL that's in your history, but it's just a little bit off that it's probably a typo, they'll intercept the browsing with a warning message saying, you're about to go to blah, blah, blah. We think you probably meant blah, blah, blah. What do you want to do? And that should really be enough to save a lot of people from a lot of trouble. So just, you know, figure, oh, you've accidentally mistyped PayPal. You probably wanted to go to actual PayPal, not PayPool or whatever. Brilliant. Simple, effective tool. And it still allows you to continue. So if it's not a typo, if the system makes a false positive, you're not blocked from anything. You just click past it. But it just puts that little break on what would have otherwise been an accidental browse to the wrong place, which could have left you vulnerable to being tricked because you thought you typed in google.com 
Therefore, if it asks you for your password and if it looks like Google, you might well do it. And then the second thing they've done is they've released a new plugin for Chrome, which ties into their um, flagging of inappropriate sites by allowing users to bring sites to Google's attention. Basically, to as you're browsing around and you come across something dodgy, you can use this plugin to report the site and then it can feed into the process of automatically protecting people from malicious sites. Nice little tool. Again, you know, good on Google to make that available as a free plugin. So that brings us to the end of Notable News and on to suggested reading. PSAs, tips and advice. Again, loads more here in this section than what I'm going to call out. So you'll see that over in the show notes at podfee.com. Just under PSA tips and advice, I want to give special props to two articles that people may find useful. Um, Google creates educational tools to help kids spot fake news. This is a fun game to help educate kids about how to tell porcupies from reality online. A life skill they are going to need. Uh, also, a very interesting article posted from uh, My Crypto on Medium. What to do when sim swapping happens to you? Sadly, sim swapping is a big thing these days. So this is one of those links that I have bookmarked in the hope I never need it. But I have it bookmarked just in case myself or any family member does end up needing it. Lots of scary stuff under notable breaches and privacy violations. Venmo scraped again. Nest cams were briefly letting new owners of secondhand devices spy on our old owners of secondhand devices spy on the new owners, but Google were able to nip that in the bud eventually. We transfer, we're sending links to files to the wrong place. Spanish soccer leagues La Liga got a fairly hefty fine for basically using their smartphone app to spy on bars and to sort of recruit users of the smartphone app into spies for the league, sniffing out places illegally airing matches. Um, a Facebook marketing agency that ran campaigns for medical malpractice lawsuits managed to leak a bunch of sensitive medical data on 150,000 people. That's not so good. Uh, U.S. government exposing identities of child abuse victims. Also not good. U.S. The NSA again in the U.S. found wrongly collecting phone records again. And a Desjardins employee in Canada uh, spilled... 2.9 million records. Apparently they're a large credit union in Canada, so that's that's not good. Uh, some notable IoT vulnerabilities. We have a medical infusion pump that can be remotely hacked and Tesla 3 navigation system can be fooled with GPS spoofing. Also not good. In terms of news in the suggested reading section, um, US reportedly seeding Russia's power grid with malware. That's an interesting uh, cyber war development. Um, the next story is actually worth mentioning because it sounds terrible but actually could be really good. So researchers have found that your Facebook posts can detect a whole bunch of illnesses with a really good rate of accuracy before you would normally present to a doctor with symptoms. If used ethically, this could save a lot of people from a lot of health problems. If used unethically, ick. So it's interesting research, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, okay, let's just hope it's used responsibly. Um, a report has found that common apps, mobile apps on both iOS and Android are riddled with high-risk security weaknesses. Basically, bad practice. Keeping stuff on the device that shouldn't be kept on the device, not using HTTPS when talking to the internet, all these kind of dumb mistakes that are easy to avoid, but somehow app manufacturers seem to keep managing to not avoid. Uh, then... 
The next thing I have here is a whole bunch of stories and opinion on LibraCoin. I, I hummed and hawed whether LibraCoin was security bits or not. I don't think it is. But it is of interest to a whole bunch of security bits audience, I think. So down here in suggested reading, I've collected together sort of what I think are some good analyses of Facebook's new crypto coin. And uh, the, the TLDR version is that LibraCoin is going to be operated technically independently from Facebook. They're just going to be one of its biggest users. Um, it's not a normal cryptocurrency because it's, the theory is it shouldn't fluctuate wildly because they're actually sort of connecting it to traditional currencies through sort of reserves. So a bit like the, the gold in Fort Knox used to, to sort of keep the dollar from fluctuating because we had the gold standard. Well, in this case, there is actual euros and dollars backing this cryptocurrency. So the value of the currency is backed up by real money. Therefore, it shouldn't go wildly all over the place because the real money will retain its value. That's the theory. And again, a whole bunch of analyses on it. Um, I think on the whole, people think it's kind of scary that Facebook might have a cryptocurrency. Um, but as I say, details in show notes. Opinion and analysis. Some really good stuff in here if you want to get stuck in. Um, a big thanks to Nasilla Castaway Stephen Getz for recommending an interesting uh, Financial Post article from um, where a Canadian politician, actions are not a politician, uh, former RIM executive Jim Basili, uh, data is not the new oil, it's the new plutonium i.e. needs to be regulated very carefully because it has immense power. Interesting read, actually. Really enjoyed that. So thank you for the tip, uh, Stephen. Um, then Samsung got themselves into all sorts of pointy finger laughing when they did a very responsible thing and posted a tweet telling people how you can navigate a deep maze of menus on your Samsung smart TV to find their built-in virus scanner and execute it. So on the one hand, if your telly needs a virus scan every now and then, it's good to tell people it needs a virus scan every now and then. On the other hand, if it needs a virus scan every now and then, why doesn't it run automatically? And if for some strange reason you don't want to do it automatically, why is it really hard to find? And why do you need a video? At the very, 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 very least, it should pop up a little message once a month or whatever saying, hey, it's been a while since you virus scanned me. How about now? So, yeah. And people are saying, oh, it's terrible that uh, Samsung are being browbeaten for doing the right thing. It's like, yes, it's the right thing. But big picture wise, it's a sign of really poor design that you need to go find this difficult to find virus scan and run it. And that are leaving it on the customer to do this, not taking care of it for them. And to be honest, my takeaway from this is don't plug a smart telly into your internet because their history is just awful. They're like, they're like IoT, only worse. Well, they are IoT. They're just bad IoT. Much, much better off to stick with a third-party box by people who know how to make software go. So an Apple TV, a Roku, a Chromecast, a Fire Stick, basically add the smarts to your telly from a software company. Don't take the smarts from a TV company because they're terrible at smarts. Again, personal advice, editorial by me. Uh, the Verge have a very interesting article where Facebook moderators broke their NDAs to expose what goes on under the hood. Deeply unpleasant. Uh, the CISO mag, so Chief of Information Security Officer magazine, do a deep dive into Apple Card, examining what the hell is going on with it, including a lot of the security stuff about it. So if you're interested in what how Apple Card does its magic, interesting article. And um, 
CNBC have an interesting piece on inside Apple's team that greenlights iPhone apps for the App Store. Basically, a little peek under the hood of how the App Store review process works. Again, interesting article. More stuff in there in opinion and analysis. Um, but again, I'll leave it to you to enjoy at your leisure. Propeller beanie territory then. Um, another nice dive into Apple's new Find My service. Um, this one isn't focusing as much on security. It, it does describe the security because Apple are managing to do their cool stuff securely, privately, safely. Um, but it sort of explains how it can manage to locate your device even when the device you're trying to locate isn't connected to the internet. So how does that work? You know, offline, finally, a missing hardware? Hmm, cool. And it's really cool text. So that, again, nice article from Tidbits. Suggested listening then. Thank you to Nasilla Castaway Linda for recommending an episode of The Daily, which is a daily podcast from the New York Times. This one is Hacking the Russian Power Grid. It's an interesting dive into the story I mentioned in suggested reading about the US seeding Russia's power grid with malware. It sort of steps back, it looks at the big picture and then puts this news into context. Very well done. Finally, a little palate cleanser for you. Another podcast episode from, again, a series I've recommended before, 50 Things That Made a Modern Economy. They dedicated their most recent episode to the blockchain. If you're confused by blockchains, listen to this episode. A blockchain is not a cryptocurrency. A cryptocurrency is a potential use of the blockchain. Blockchain has way more uses beyond it. What's the difference? How does one relate to the other? Listen to the episode and you will know a lot more. Very, very interesting stuff. Very well explained. BBC World Service do amazing podcasts. Right, well, I'm going to draw a line under this solo security bits. I really miss Alison for these, but, uh, you know, she'll be back soon. So uh, in two weeks' time, I expect to hear myself and Alison tell you about all the other horrible things that have happened in the world of security in the two weeks that are about to come. And until then, do remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the show. But just before we wrap up, just to say that if you've enjoyed listening to what I do, you can find my own podcast at lets-talk.ie. I do a monthly Apple show where we take a big picture look at the month's news that was. I got together a panel of people who are fellow Apple aficionados and we basically talk through the big trends, big picture stories so the way I like to think of it is if Mac OS Ken provides the trees on a daily basis in terms of Apple news, then Let's Talk Apple is there to have a look at the forest as a whole. Big trends, big changes, important stuff. It's, it's kind of interesting to step back and take the 40,000 foot view every now and then. The second monthly show I do is Let's Talk Photography, which is all about the art and craft of photography. There is no fixed format for Let's Talk Photography. It's whatever I think will work for whatever topic happens to make me interested that month. Sometimes it's just little old me talking into a microphone. Sometimes I interview someone interesting. Or sometimes, very sometimes these days, I might even get a panel together to hammer out some sort of photo-related topic. Whatever it is, it'll be about the art and craft of photography rather than specific pieces of gear and reviews of specific apps and things like that. It's, again, more bigger picture sort of a show. Anyway, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments and suggestions by emailing alison at alison at com. You can find me and everything I do at bartb.ie. And remember, everything good starts with com forward slash. 
podfeed.com forward slash Patreon to support the show, podfeed.com forward slash Facebook, if you're into that kind of thing, podfeed.com forward slash Slack, which I love, and you'll find me in there all the time. Uh, also, remember that there will be no live show next week either, because Alison and Steve are still off enjoying the Malbec and the scenery and the eclipse. So, uh, Nasilla Castaway, Alistair Jinx will be taking my place as pretend Alison for next show. Okay, well, let's call it a day at that. Uh, until next time, happy computing. Thank you.